<clears throat> Good morning. Apple pie, <clears throat> free lunch, woodshed, no lunch. Makes sense to me. <laughs> All right, let's turn to First uh, Samuel 16. First Samuel 16. We are continuing our study in the uh, life of David, <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> since this is Father's Day, we might entitle this, this uh, message, One Real Bad Dad, and it really has more to do with his relationship with his father-in-law, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave that as the title anyway. <clears throat> when we look at the life of David and his relationship with Saul, uh, we see that it actually started out very, very well. So let's take a look at uh, verse chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. <clears throat> you remember that um, David had been anointed as king. Saul did not know this, but Saul had been rejected as the king by the Lord. And it says that the spirit of the Lord uh, let, departed from Saul and an evil spirit came upon him and that the Spirit of God uh, came upon David. When David uh, would, or when Saul would be troubled by the Spirit, uh, his, his advisors recommended David as one who could play soothing music for him. And this is what we read in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16. So David came to Saul and stood before him, <clears throat> and he loved him greatly. That is, Saul loved David greatly. And he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. <clears throat> now we know that <clears throat> during this period of David's life, that he would play music for Saul. Saul would be comforted. And then David would return to his father, father's household and he would care for his father's sheep. And then Saul would become troubled again and David would travel back and he would play more music. He would be soothed and then David would go back and forth like this for uh, quite some time. Last week we, we looked at the story of David and Goliath. And David was probably about 17 or 18 years old when he took on uh, Goliath. When he came to... Uh, bring some goods for his brothers, he began to ask what would be done for the man who could slay Goliath. And they told him that he would become uh, the king's son-in-law, that the king was going to give one of his daughters to the one who killed Goliath. And as he began asking, is this really so? Is this really so? Is it really so? And he kept hearing the same report back. News of his inquiry went to Saul. And Saul uh, same chapter, oh no, sorry, next chapter, chapter 17 and verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, 
and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, Saul's comments in this section demonstrate a lack of courage and a lack of faith. He says, You are not able. You are but a youth. He is a man of war from his youth. And Saul's life and his words are filled with pessimism. David, on the other hand, is courageous and full of faith in the Lord. First of all, he believes that God's honor is at stake. And he says, he is defying the armies of the living God. And uh, he's, he's basically making a declaration, look, this is unrighteous for a man to defy God. Something has to be done about this. He believes that the Lord's honor is at stake. Then he points to God's help in times past in his life as evidence that God will help him to defeat Goliath. He said, just as the Lord helped me with the, defeating the lion and the bear, so the Lord is going to help me in defeating this, this uh, uncircumcised Philistine. And David did go out and fought Goliath, and uh, the Lord delivered Goliath into his hands. And he killed him. And in slaying Goliath, he also bolstered the faith of all of Israel to go out and fight against the Philistines, and they had a great slaughter that day. Now, this would be a very appropriate time to stop the message here and sit down and say, okay, Rick, now it's time to talk about Jonathan because that's really next in the sequence. But Jonathan and David's lives are kind of intertwined, and so I'm going to carry on with David for a little bit here, touch on Jonathan just briefly, but next week, Lord willing, Rick will look at the life of Jonathan specifically. So as a result of defeating Goliath, Saul said, all right, here's a, here's a young man who's strong. He's, he's, he's uh, good at war. I'm going to put him in charge of the men of war. And he went out to battle with them. Now, let's turn to chapter 18. I want to look at four different views of David in this chapter. Okay? And so if you could kind of follow with me through the chapter, we're going to skip around different verses, but I want to show you four different views of David. The first is Jonathan's view. Jonathan, as you may know, was Saul's son. He should have been the next in line to take the throne. If you just follow family ties, he should be the one who was next anointed as king. But um, he wasn't. In verse 1, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan's view of David is one of great love. Later in life, David said of Jonathan's love that it was greater than the love of a woman. In other words, it, it, it was a, a love that was totally 
with, without uh, need back. There was no, it was a selfless love. We would call it today a Christ-like love. It was a love that was all about David and not about himself. And so that's Jonathan's view of David. Then we have David's view of himself, starting with verse 5. It says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Now, we're going to look at this term several times here. So just notice this, that David recognized that if he was going to be useful to the king and he was going to do the right thing before in god's eyes that he needed to behave himself wisely and it says and saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all people and also in the sight of saul's servants verse 14 and david behaved wisely in all his ways and the lord was with him verse 15 therefore when saul saw that he behaved very wisely he was afraid of him verse 18 So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? This is a view of what? What would you call that? Sorry? David's view of himself here. Humility. Sure. Who am I? I mean, I'm nothing. Why should I be the uh, the king's son, son son-in-law? Verse 23. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of david and david said does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law seeing i am a poor and lightly esteemed man again humility verse 30 then the princes of the philistines went out to war and so it was whenever they went out that david behaved more wisely than all the servants of saul so that his name became highly esteemed so jonathan loved david David behaved wisely, and he was gaining a a good reputation among the people. Third is Saul's view of David. Verse 8. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. What saying? Well, right before this, we see David coming back from battle, and the women get out, and they're dancing, and they're singing, and they're saying... Saul has slain, I don't know how the tune went, but Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Ouch. Who's king? Saul is king. And so Saul hears this song being sung, and apparently it was so popular, it was number one on the charts for quite a while. Because we see later, when David goes to um, uh, the Philistines, to Gath, they've even heard the song. So they must have been listening to the same station, all right? When Saul heard this, he was angry, very angry, it says in verse 8. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David tens or ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? By the way, Saul knew that the kingdom was taken from him. He knew that the kingdom was going to be another's, and he was resisting God all the way through the rest of his life. Um, and and he became angry about this. And uh, verse 9 says, So Saul eyed, or another uh, interpretation of this, he watched with jealousy David from that day forward. Verse 11, And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. He was not going to be an ornament on the wall, just hanging there. The idea here is that he was going to kill David. The, sword was, or the, the uh, spear was going to go through him, Uh, through to the wall but david escaped his presence twice verse 12 
Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Verse 15. Therefore, when Saul saw that David behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. Verse 29. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Loved by Jonathan, behaved wisely before all the people, hated, hated with a passion by his father-in-law. How was he viewed by the people of Israel? Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, behaved wisely. Saul sent him over the men of war, and notice, he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 7. So the, the women sang and they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and he came in before them. Verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So if we were to send the pollsters out at this time throughout all of Israel, and uh, they were to take a, a satisfaction poll or something like that of David, um, Take an opinion poll, guess what? David's name would be right up there. Thousands of times higher than Saul's. David has slain his thousands. Uh, I mean, Saul has slain his thousands. David has tens of thousands. It seems to me that according to the opinion polls, this would be the very best time for David to be king. So if you're, if you're relying on polls, this is the time. This is the time to take over the, the kingdom. David is loved. The women are ascribing the slaughter of, of tens of thousands. Saul's own children love him. Jonathan uh, and uh, Michael. So based on the opinion polls, David's popularity is at an all-time high. So why doesn't God take action and make him king? Why doesn't God simply say, well, you know, I've tested the, the wind. I've tested the waters. I've taken the opinion poll. Let's put David in place. Why doesn't he do that? See, we live in a country of instant gratification. That's our view, instant gratification. Whatever we want is within easy grasp. Do you want news? You flip on the channel. If you don't like that particular view, you flip on a channel that's more conservative. If you don't like that, you, you flip on a channel that's liberal. Whatever it is, you can flip and you can get what you want. If it's music. You press a button, you get rock, or you get jazz, or you get country, or you get easy listening to music at a flip of a dial, real easy, instant. In the kitchen, we have instant potatoes, we have instant coffee, we have instant hot water. Online, we have instant access, instant advice on everything you could possibly think of, instant insurance quotes, instant messaging. But there's no such thing as instant character. It doesn't happen that way. If it had been left up to the opinion polls, David would have been king. But God knew that David was not ready to be king over Israel at this time. 
and he still needed at least a decade of character development before God would place him as king over his people. Character is developed not by reading character sketches, not by listening to stories, not even by listening to sermons on character. But character is learned in the real school of life. That's how God develops character. How can you develop patience if you've never had to wait? I know that it's typical of us to say, Lord, give me patience, but please, I'm in a hurry. You know? How can you learn to trust if you have never become vulnerable? How can you become thankful if you've never had a need? How can you overcome arrogance, boasting, pride, self-importance if you've never been humbled? How can you develop faith if you've never been tested? How can you develop character? Well, I can point to a young lady back there and I can say, you've developed loyalty. How did you develop loyalty? By being robbed at gunpoint and then going back and working at the same place. That's developing loyalty. And I could say, well, where is he? There he is. You've developed faithfulness. And how have you developed faithfulness? By taking our requests for tapes or CDs and producing them in a timely manner without any kind of complaints. I don't know if you complain at home, but we don't hear it. <laughs> All right. Uh, David, you've developed discipline when you run across Castro Valley and back every day for months on end. You know, I take out my faithful car and I drive and you run. Faithfulness, discipline. I think of Mary and Joanna walking every morning and praying and, and seeking God uh, for themselves and for us as they walk and they pray each day. Discipline. You've excelled in determination when you refuse to give up praying for a son or a daughter who has gone astray or a relative or a friend. You develop perseverance when you have practiced. I think of you guys with instruments, practicing endless hours at a time. Perseverance. Or when you study hours in solitude. You learn to show compassion when you help somebody move. Or when you visit the sick. Or when you provide a meal for those who are in need. And you grow in godliness when you choose to make right, deci right decisions even to your own detriment. Godliness. You cultivate love when you care for those who don't love you. You grow in endurance when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You develop mercy when you forgive those who say all manner of evil against you falsely for his name's sake. And none of these character traits are learned in an afternoon. They are learned in the school of life over a long period of time. And they're all important if we're going to grow to be men and women of sterling character. That's what God is looking for. So God totally ignores the, the public opinion polls. And he, why? Because he is making a man of character. He is making a man of faith. 
and he is making a man after his own heart. And such an undertaking does not happen in a day. So how old is David at this time? He's probably 20. He doesn't become king until he's 30. And he doesn't become king over all of Israel and Judah until he's 37 and a half years old. Long time uh, to develop character in David. So what are the tools that God uses to develop this character? Well, one of the tools he uses is other people. God uses other people in our lives, sometimes good, sometimes bad. In David's case, he used his father-in-law as one of those tools to uh, hone his character. And as I said earlier, the relationship between David and Saul started out very well. David played songs whenever the evil spirit troubled him, and it refreshed Saul and cheered him up. It says that Saul loved him at first. He found favor in his sight. In fact, in in chapter 16, it says he loved him greatly. And we see that he rewarded that, uh, uh, what David did, by giving him responsibility. His armor bearer, and then uh, he set him out over the men of war. But that song really, really got under Saul's skin. David, or Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Men had got to him. And it says that he eyed David from that day forward. Saul was outraged, and his love turned to hate, and his hate turned to attempted murder. Some people say that Saul tried to kill David four times. I beg to differ. I think it was at least 12. And uh, here we're going to take a look at these um, as we go. So let's take a look at chapter 18. And we'll begin reading at verse 10. Here are the first two attempts of murder by spear. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. That's verse 10. And he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand and as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear and he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. God caused all things to work together for good in David's life. And as a result, David grew in prudence. And so I want you to just think about the words that we use as we go through here. So prudence is one of the, wor- one of the character traits learned by David in this. Next one, verse uh, 12. Um, let's take a look at that just a minute. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand, and, went, and he went out and came in before the people. He said, well, that's a reward, isn't it? It's a reward if David's ready for it. If David's ready to be captain over a thousand, yeah. But it puts him in significant danger as well. And I believe, and we'll see this in a minute. Uh, in fact, if we go down to verse 17, then Saul said to David, "Here is my, um, yeah, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles." Here's what Saul was thinking in putting David in this position. For Saul thought, "Let my hand not be against him, 
but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. In other words, he put him in this position so that the Philistines would slaughter him. He he would be free from the blood of David. But that was the reason he did this. Had it worked out, it might be considered as manslaughter in the second degree, possibly. I talked to Tom about this yesterday. But this is probably a military thing, and so it might be completely different. But in either case, he's trying to put David in a place of danger where he might be killed. Again, God overruled. And as a result, he goes out and he comes in and he's successful. God gives him um, great success. And so God is developing character traits in David at this time, and he's growing in wisdom, and he's growing in leadership. Two things that are very important if you're going to be king, right? And all of Israel and Judah loved him, it says in verse 16. So, third. The next thing we see is that um, verse uh, 22, I think it is. It happened, yeah, verse 19, pardon me. But it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mehalephite, as a wife. What is the significance of that? Well, here's what I think happened. You remember David said, what shall be done for the man who kills Goliath? And they said, Saul is going to give a daughter to him. He's going to become this king's son-in-law. And so Saul says, all right, I've made this commitment. I've made this promise. I'm going to give Saul my daughter. But at the last moment, right before he was going to be married, he switches and says, no, I've given her to somebody else. Why would he do that? Would it not irritate David? Hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this guy? He didn't kill Goliath. I'm the one who killed Goliath. But if he speaks against the king or takes action against the king, guess what? He's dead. He's a dead man. And so he doesn't. He acts wisely before King Saul, and he says nothing about it. I think this was purposely done by Saul to cheat him out of what was rightfully his uh, so that he might react in anger, physically or verbally, and it would be grounds to kill him. But the Lord taught David humility. And rather than respond that his rights had been violated, David said in verse 23 of chapter 18, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed man? Look, if the king doesn't give me his daughter at all, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a nothing. That's humility. That was David's attitude here. So we learn in verse 20, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. That's the younger daughter. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Why would this please him? So Saul said, this is why it pleased him, I will give her to him that she might be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you'll be my son-in-law today. David responded. Um, he said, look, I, I, he told the men who told him this, I, I can't pay the dowry, there's no way. I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. I, I, I don't have the kind of finances that it would take to pay a dowry to the king for his daughter. And Saul heard about it and said, okay, then here's what I want. I want the the foreskin of a hundred Philistines as the dowry payment for my daughter. That's what he meant when he said that uh, she might be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. He he was thinking, look, I'm going to make this so difficult for David 
that he's going to have to go out and kill a hundred mighty warriors among the Philistines and bring back their foreskin, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. He's going to be killed by the Philistines, and then I'll be rid of David. That's what his thinking was. And David says, okay, I'll take you on. I'll take the challenge. And he goes out and he kills not a hundred, he kills two hundred Philistines. And he counts them out. It's a bizarre uh, a dowry, but he counts out two hundred and says, there you go, payment in full, and then some. I've doubled it. What could he do? He was given Michael as his wife. Um, again, David had to learn something here. And God was uh, teaching him some character lessons. Jesus said this, if a man strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If you're compelled to walk a mile, go two. The first mile you're required to do. The second mile shows that you're, there's something different about you. There's something beyond normal. That you have a character that is greater than the normal person. And David learned to be virtuous and honorable. As a result, his name became highly esteemed. Chapter 19 and verse 1. Saul conspires to kill David. It says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan's son delighted greatly in David, and Jonathan told David what was about to happen. So again, God spared David through Jonathan. And Jonathan appealed to his father here, and he says, as the Lord lived, um, yeah, it, later in the, in the chapter here, he appeals to his, his uh, father and says, look, he's the guy who killed Goliath. You were happy at the time he killed Goliath. You were glad when you saw him defeated. Don't do this. It would be unrighteous. And in his appeal to his father, he got his father to change his mind. And uh, Saul responded in verse 6 by saying this, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. In this event, David had to learn another character trait. Trust. Trust. When, it, when everybody was against him, he had to learn to trust God. And God did not disappoint him. So, chapter 19, verse 10. It says, Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But David slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night so again Saul tries to kill David with a spear and again God delivers him so David goes to his house he flees to his house and there in his house um, he goes to his wife and his wife says look you're a dead man and if you don't get out of here tonight you're going to be dead by morning because Saul sent a SWAT team to David's house to murder him before morning verses 11 and so on let's take a look at that Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. 
And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael's answer to Saul was, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David escaped. The Lord delivered him again. But again, another character trait was learned in this event. And it's a character trait of discernment. If David was going to be a wise ruler, he needed to learn discernment. Let me say it this way. It's good to be at peace with all men. It's good to be at peace with all men. But there are some whom we must stand against. And so, as much as is in you, the Bible says, be at peace with all men, but there are some men we must stand against. And that's where discernment comes in. Where do you take the stand? And David looked at this and he said, he had to think, look, he's tried to kill me twice. He's tried to kill me through the Philistines. He's tried to kill me in this way and that way. Now he's sending out men to kill me again. I get it. I need to leave. Okay, well, that's discernment. So David recognized that he could not please Saul. You know, there are some people that you simply can't please. And Saul was one of them. He could not be pleased. We have to face it too. You know, I believe that God brings people like that into our lives to teach us discernment. That we might see, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do for this person. It doesn't matter what I do. I cannot please this person. It develops discernment. During this episode... David wrote a psalm, or he wrote a psalm shortly after this, to describe his feelings during this time, what he was going through internally. And this is what he says. Deliver me, this is the psalm, uh, Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You know, David was learning something here. He's he's crying out to God, Lord, deliver me. There, There are people who are trying to kill me. And what is the reason that they're against me? Why are they against me? And he looks at himself and he says, I can't find a reason. There is no reason. David wasn't claiming perfection. He knew he was a sinner. That's not what he's saying here. But he says, I have not done anything unrighteous to deserve death. There's no reason for this at all. Why is there this injustice? And he says, Lord, I'm appealing to you. There's an injustice that is about to occur. Save me. Deliver me. And what does God do? He delivers David. He delivers him. Okay, so he fled to Ramah, where Samuel was living, and he stayed in a town called uh, Naoth. So that's the next thing that happens. And we see that Saul says, okay, I hear that he's in this little town. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send some vigilantes out to get him. And so he sends a, a, a SWAT team or a team of vigilantes out to where David is going to be, and their, their whole purpose, their sole purpose, 
is to seize David and to kill him. That's it. But when they get there, the Spirit of God overcomes them, and they begin to prophesy like the prophets. They become prophets. And Saul hears about it. He says, okay, that didn't work. So I'll send another team. Go kill David. And so some more vigilantes go out. And they say, no problem. Those guys didn't know what they were doing. And they get there. And guess what? The Spirit of God once again interferes. And he causes them to be prophets too. And they're now prophesying. Saul says, ah. All right. Two teams. Let's send the best. So he sends another team out to do the same thing. And they get there. And the Spirit of God overcomes them. And they become prophets as well. And I can just see Saul pulling his hair out and, and, and being frustrated and angry and saying, you know, if you're going to do a job, you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? And so out he goes to kill David. And when he gets there, the Spirit of God overcomes him. And he becomes a prophet and prophesies. And the people are going, whoa, what's this? Is Saul among the prophets? Is he too among the prophets? And the Holy Spirit of God delivered David once again. David fled from this town. And um, once again, the Lord intervened for David. He fled from this town and he met up with Jonathan in verse, uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 1. We read that. David f- fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? What is going on here? At this time, the Lord was developing character traits of justice, equity, righteousness in David's life. Why do I say that? By being the object of injustice and unrighteousness and unrighteous behavior, David learned the opposite. He's saying there is no reason for this. He's being able to clearly see or distinguish between righteous behavior and unrighteous behavior. And he says to Jonathan, what is it that I've done? In fact, he goes on to say to Jonathan, look, if I have sinned, kill me yourself. Take my life. I'm willing to be killed if I've done something wrong. He hadn't done anything wrong at all. So David learned justice and equity and righteousness. So David had learned a little bit of discernment. And there was a dinner party that was going to be thrown at Saul's uh, house. It was a three-day event. And at this dinner time, David had uh, talked with Jonathan ahead of time. He said, look, Jonathan, your father's intention is to kill me. And, and he says, I don't want to be there. I don't think it's appropriate to be there. I'm going to die if I go there. And Jonathan says, well, let, let me test the waters. And so he says, if I find that my father is okay, come on to the party. If he's not, then I'll tell you. This is okay. And so he didn't commit himself to, to Saul. But they went to the party. First night, Saul looked. He noticed that David wasn't there, but didn't say anything. Second night, David wasn't there. Saul noticed again he wasn't there. And this time he spoke up and says, where is David? And Jonathan said, well, he's, uh, there was an important engagement at his own town in Bethlehem, and uh, he has to go there. And, he, and Saul was furious, was absolutely furious with Jonathan because he knew that Jonathan was in cahoots with David. And he took his spear and he threw it at his own son and tried to pin him to the wall to kill him. And it says in the scripture, uh, verse uh, chapter 20, 
I think it's verse 33. Yeah, verse 33. Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. The anger of, of, of Saul was directed at Jonathan, but it was really meant for David. So David's discernment had grown at this point. And by the end of the chapter, we see David's loyalty to his friend Jonathan as well. Well, here we go. At this point, we believe David is early 20s. And he realizes that Saul is bent on killing him. And so he flees to King Ashish, king of Gath, the hometown of Goliath of the Philistines. Chapter 21. Let's take a look. Verse 10. David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Ashish, the king of Gath. When King Ashish uh, saw him, he welcomed him. And then the guys who had been listening to the radio, you know, they said, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a song about this guy. Okay? It goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands. King Ashish, the thousands he's talking about are us Philistines, remember? And David, his tens of thousands. This is the same guy they're singing about. And David overhears this. And he goes, whoops, my cover's been blown. Okay? And so he starts drooling in his beard and scratching on the doors like a madman. He, he, beca- he acts like he's crazy. It's not the highlight of David's life. In uh, police jargon, he would be considered a 5150, right? That term is used of a person. The 5150 is a crazy person. It's also used of a, a written request to put the person under involuntary psychiatric care for up to, what is it, 72 hours? Okay, so the psychiatrist can look at him and examine him and figure out what's going on with the person mentally. Are they a danger to themselves? Are they a danger to the public? This guy's a madman. He's a 5150, right? That's what he wanted them to believe. Fortunately for David, there were no psychiatrists in his day. Okay, there were no 5150s in his day, and so they didn't take him to the uh, the psychiatric hospital. But there was a belief in those days that people who were mentally disturbed like this had demons in them. That's the way those people viewed them. And so they thought that if you disturbed a person who what we would call is a 5150 today, if you disturbed them, those demons would come and attack you. And that's the mentality of the people of this day. And it's important to know that because David was pretending to be insane so that they would not want to come near him they would not want him in their presence and that's why the king king Ashish says in first samuel 21 14 then Ashish said to his servants look you see the man is insane why have you brought him to me have i need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence shall this fellow come into my house no we don't want him here send him away david was spared um possibly certain death in this case here again We've seen that the Lord is protecting David. The Lord is working on his behalf. And he's working on his inner character traits um, uh, during this time. But more importantly than the character traits that he's working on is that God is, is teaching David to trust him. You know, if you were to boil down all of the Christian life into, this one, into one sentence, it's really this. God wants us to trust him. 
It's that simple. It really is. God wants us to trust Him. That means He wants us to trust Him in every circumstance of life, whether things are going well or things are going badly, whether, whether it's sunny or whether it's cloudy, whether you're in pain or you're free from health concerns. God wants us to trust Him. And that's what He's doing in David's life during this period of time. You say, well, the road is too tough. I've got too much on my plate. It's this or it's that. No, God wants you to trust Him in all circumstances of life. Trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in Him for deliverance. Trust in Him for safety. Trust in Him for security. Trust in Him for the future. Trust in Him for finances. Trust in Him in everything. Now, it may not seem like David was trusting in the Lord here, but he definitely was. And uh, David would dispute that statement. And I'm going to read something in a minute. But first, I'm going to tell you something. I may have told you this story before, and if I have, you can sleep for the next couple of minutes. If I haven't, I'll just share something with you. When I was uh, dating Krista, we had a very short engagement period, and uh, one day we went out for a walk around a place called Stanley Park. Stanley Park is in, the, is in uh, downtown Vancouver, and it's basically like an island with a, um, uh, a little bit of land that goes out to it. But most of the park is surrounded by water. And on the west side, you can look out into, I call it the Pacific Ocean. It's really the Georgia Strait. But beyond that is the Pacific Ocean. And uh, as we walked around Stanley Park, we came to the west side, and I stopped. And I said to Krista, I said, I need to talk to you about my lifestyle. And she said, okay. And we weren't married yet, okay? And we were talking about marriage and, and that. And I said, because I live kind of differently, and, and I want you to know that in advance. And I said, here's what I'd like to liken it to. He said, I, I, I try to explain to her the life of faith, what it means to trust in the Lord in every circumstance of life. And as much as I understood it then, and as much as I could, I tried to explain it to her. And I said, look, this is the way I'd like to describe it for you. It's like this ocean here. There's enough water here to walk in up to your toes. The life of faith is like that. I said, there's enough water here in the life of faith to walk in up to your knees. Really, in the life of faith, there's enough water to walk in up to your waist or up to your neck. Really, there's enough water to swim in. And in the life of faith, when you're through with that, if God so calls you, you can walk on water. I said, the life of faith is really a life of trusting God. It's a life of dependence upon God for everything. And I said, I've lived in complete dependence upon God for a number of years, and I want to continue to live that way. I don't want to change. And I said, if you're not comfortable with that, it's not going to hurt my feelings. I would hurt my feelings, but, I, but it would, uh, I would understand it if you walked away and said, look, this is just not the life for me. God will still love you. I will still love you, but I will understand that. I said, God has provided for me as a single man for low these five years, you know? And I said, I am sure that if he can provide for me as a single man, he can certainly provide for me and you. And I said, if God can provide for me and you, I'm sure he can provide for me and you and any number of children that he brings our way, not knowing what I was in for. 
And if God can provide for me and you and whatever children he brings our way, I said, God can provide anything at all. I said, look, here's the way I look at it. There were two and a half million people in the wilderness. And God provided daily manna for them. And God provided water out of a rock. Is he going to have trouble with providing food and shelter, clothing, all of our necessities for our life? I don't think so. He's the same God who provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. I don't know where they got their shoes from because they lasted for 40 years and I have not found a store that can do that yet. Okay, But the Lord provides. And I said, that's the way I want to live. Are you with me in this? And obviously she said, she did. I do know that God cannot fail. And what he has promised, he will provide. He is not going to fail. He will never leave us or forsake us. And I may be just like a child with my toes dipped in the edge of the water in my Christian life. But God will not fail me, and he will not forsake me. And he will not fail you, nor forsake you. Sometimes I feel like a child, not realizing the vast resources of my God. The resources of the Lord to care for our every need. And I can say with David, I have been young, and I am now old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. David is growing in faith here. Remember, he has just had, what I count at least, 12 attempts at his life by his own countrymen. And now he is going to the enemy to be in their territory. And this is what we learn about David's true thoughts about this incident in uh, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says this. It's a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. David has learned something here, to trust the Lord and to praise the Lord in the midst of difficulties and trials. And I'll tell you, saints, this is where true worship begins. Trusting the Lord and praising him in the midst of trials and difficulties. He blesses the Lord for answered prayer, for deliverance from fears, deliverance from troubles and needs. And he learns the character lessons of brokenness and contrition. He learns that the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. You notice that word all that keeps coming up in that, uh, that psalm? All their troubles, all their afflictions. He will not withhold any good thing from you. What troubles, what afflictions do you face today? Take God at his word and trust him. That's what it's about, trusting God in every circumstance. Trust him for your provision. Trust him for your deliverance. He will answer your prayers. Whatever troubles you're facing, whatever difficulties you're facing in life, God is busy at work in your life, molding your character, shaping your character that you might become like his son. He wants you to be more and more like Jesus. And who could be against that? In the midst of the furnace, he wants you to trust him. So David went for at least a third of his life facing tribulation, distress, persecution, and the sword. Yet, yet God's love for David never ceased. God's care never failed. And God's word came to pass. Ultimately, David became the king. Do you think it's a strange thing as a Christian when you face trials and difficulties? The Lord, has, the Lord promised David that he would be king. The Lord has promised believers that he has a place prepared for us in heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said that. He also promises that we will reign with him. We will be kings and priests. We will be reigning with him. But we haven't come into the good of that promise yet, have we? Any more than David came into the good of it in that 10 years of his life. In the meantime, we may suffer trials. We may suffer persecution. Enemies may rise against us, and we may be persecuted as believers. But here is what the Apostle Paul says about that. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. When did he do that? When we were his enemies. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God? No, it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Is Christ going to condemn us? No, it is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. 
the same things that happened to David are going to happen to us as believers. Maybe not to the same extent. We may not have somebody throw a spear at us. We may not have somebody throw a javelin at us or send uh, posses out to get us. But we will suffer persecution because the Bible says all who live godly shall suffer persecution. He says, as it is written, we are, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has not forgotten his promise. God will not forsake his saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of David and the trials that he went through, the psalms that he wrote as an expression of his love and appreciation for you, that you are a God who delivers. You're a God who is carefully at work in developing character uh, in us, that we might be more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And, And Lord, we just say to you, do whatever is necessary in our lives to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your promise that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, Lord, not to forget your promises. Help us not to forget your word, but to trust you more and more each day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.